This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. On this episode of Conspiracy Unlimited, the true story of Rodney Alcala, the game show killer. Now let's see, Baxter number one is a successful photographer who got his start when his father found him in the dark room at the age of 13, fully developed. <laughs> Between takes, he might find him skydiving or motorcycling. Please welcome Rodney Alcala. Rod, welcome. He, he won. She picked him. And they they come out and meet, and then they have the uh, the grand prize some weekend in a hotel with dinner and all this sort of very romantic, right? And so you know, it goes to break, and they're talking, and she was so creeped out by him, she wouldn't go on the trip, she wouldn't go for dinner, and she wouldn't even stick around at the show. This podcast is brought to you by Family Bunker Designs. If you believe things are headed in a scary direction these days, then you'll want to listen to this message. Four years ago, John Hartman, a retired military and certified disaster and survival expert, created the ultimate solution to keep his family safe from danger. He built a family survival bunker. With the advice of experts, he decided to share what he learned and publish the ultimate guide to family bunker construction. His designs are highly affordable, yet your family bunker will be safe, well hidden, and strong enough to withstand almost any disaster or terrorist attack. These days, with so many threats out there, a safe hideout is essential for security. And right now, when you order the Family Bunker Guide, you'll get three bonus survival guides absolutely free. Don't put it off. Get this life-saving information now. Learn more at clearbroadcast.com. That's clearbroadcast.com. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs, here's Richard Serrett. I spent an inordinate amount of time watching television as a child. We had maybe, oh, I don't know, a half a dozen channels using the old aerial. And it was an old floor model TV. I don't remember the make, but the plastic knobs, remember those, they would break. And eventually, and some of you of a certain age will remember this, those plastic knobs would break. And so in order to turn the channel, you had to use a pair of pliers to grab the little metal post where the plastic knob used to be. I remember rushing home from school so I could get to the pliers before my older brother and three sisters. Uh, You see, whoever controlled the pliers controlled the TV set. And I wanted to watch Batman uh, with Adam West, of course, and my three sisters were in love with Bobby Sherman and David Soule. They were two of the co-stars of a TV show called Here Come the Brides. Uh, So that was the deal. Uh, But besides Batman and Star Trek, I loved game shows. I loved Password with Alan Ludden and the great celebrity guests like Tony Randall, who was brilliant on on Password. And I loved the Hollywood Squares with Paul Lind and Charlie Weaver and Marty Allen, all gone. God rest their souls. It was so wonderful and innocent. Occasionally, I would watch uh, The Dating Game with Jim Lang, It wasn't really age-appropriate. There were a lot of sexual innuendos, so I didn't watch it that much. But it's hard to imagine, back in September 1978, Rodney Alcala was selected on the dating game as the winner by the lovely bachelorette, and everyone seemed to agree he was the right choice. 
But behind the handsome face, the successful photographer, Alcala, was in the middle of a killing sexual rampage. He's been compared to the likes of Ted Bundy, with as many as 215 murders to his name. He would torture his victims by by strangulation until they lost consciousness. Then he would rape them. And then when they came to, he would repeat this process several times before finally killing them. Uh, This evil carnage is uh, detailed in The Killing Game, the true story of Rodney Alcala, the game show killer by author Alan R. Warren. Alan co-hosts the popular true crime radio show House of Mystery, which is heard on KKNW 1150 AM out of Seattle. He's also the best-selling author of several true crime books, including his latest, The Killing Game. And he's also a contributor to the True Crime Case Files magazine and Serial Killer magazine. Alan Warren, welcome to Conspiracy Unlimited. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Tell us a little bit about your your radio program that is dedicated to to true crime. This is, uh, I mean, we know about the success of true crime uh, f- um, nonfiction, but it's it really it's really taken off on podcasts and radio as well. Uh, yeah, yeah. It just. Um you know, it was something we were doing one day a week, and now it's five days a week um, uh, out of Seattle, and it's picked up on stations throughout the states, Utah and Phoenix and um, Idaho now, and all over. So, yeah, people are just fascinated with true crime. And, and the, the program is called House of Mystery, and that's uh, heard on KKNW 1150 AM in Seattle. That's right. Yeah, that's the home station. And uh, they can pick up. There are there are a number of affiliates. Is there a website? Yeah, actually, if you go to the KKNW and House of Mystery, it'll have all the connections there. Or I have a website called somethingweirdmedia.com, and uh, we produce the show as well as others and um, books and everything. It's just kind of everything to do with uh, true crime and mystery. When you think about uh, that, that, that there is enough, you know, serial killers and murder and mayhem and uh, evil in the world to fill five five shows a week. On, on one, on the one hand, it is kind of a sad commentary, isn't it? Uh, it's endless, and uh, it, it is sad because well, there is no shortage of material. It's crazy. We could go even more than five days a week. And what what do you think is the appeal uh, for both readers of true crime, which is, the last I checked, that is the most popular genre, uh, and women in particular uh, seem to enjoy true crime. What is the uh, what's the appeal, the allure? Do you think? You know, I I I can't quite capture what it is that that draws so many people. I, maybe it's because. Um, it it tells the story in a book and you get to learn about the characters and uh, it it represents people you know, people in your lives every day and uh, how easy it is that these crimes happen and they're just with normal people like just like us and I, I think that maybe brings it close to home. The last time you and I uh, talked was about Canadian serial killer Russell Williams. Uh, this time around, we're going to look at the the game show killer, Rodney Alcala. And uh, the fact that he was um, he had he had raped an eight year old girl. He had murdered at least four others. And yet somehow found his way onto the dating game, a very popular show I remember watching as a, as a child growing up, hosted by Jim Lang and that hideous blue tuxedo. <laughs> How was it that Rodney L. Kayla found his way onto that game show, given his horrible killing spree? Yeah, you know, it, it, the best answer I can come up with for him was just his charm and able to... Um, work his way in any anywhere you know he um he got a job at the la times and he had committed a a, a, you know the attack and rapes by then had already been to jail and they didn't even check he was Uh, a registered sex offender he was 
but they didn't even realize that he was working for them. And, and he he also got a job um, or studying, and he he studied in New York NYU with Roman Polanski, <laughs> who was a, a major filmmaker in the '60s. And um, you know, he had the the charm and the wherewithal to be able to talk his way into anything. Um, I, I, I can't explain how he got away with so much for so long, and he's still doing it to this day. He's still getting away with it. Right. He's, uh, uh, is he, I guess he's on death row appealing his, his death sentence. He's in Corcoran, which is where Charlie Manson was until he passed, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, exactly. But, you know, he keeps winning his appeals. <laughs> you know, he's never going to get put to death. It, 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 it's become a show. It's just like a game for him. He's constantly uh, winning appeals, and he, he, at the same time, they're finding evidence for other people that he's killed. It's just, it's just going to be an endless cycle. It's going to go on far after he's dead. Let's let's uh, go back to was it 1978 or 79? He appeared on the dating game. Uh, take us back to that. 1978. So. Yeah. Uh, for those who don't know uh, how the show worked, there were three uh, eligible bachelorettes. They were looking to date somebody, and uh, behind the was it th- no one bachelorette, right? Yeah, how did one bachelorette? And then behind the screen were three uh, prospective dates, and she would question them without seeing them. And at the end of the show, she would pick the one, uh, and they would try to be funny or romantic uh, with their replies and so forth. You've seen the episode, presumably. T- tell us oh, yeah. what it was. Was it like? I mean, obviously, well, you know, in hindsight, you'd get the creeps. But was there any indication that this guy was like psychotic? Well, you know, watching it now, and maybe it's just because it's dated. When I was watching it, I thought he was really creepy, uh, you know. And like, and so of course, right away, I was thinking, well, maybe it's just because, uh, you know, I know who he is now, and 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 it's kind of corny. But he, he, I thought he was creepy. He, um, he, she would ask him questions, and and he would uh, moan and groan, and he would uh, act very sexual towards her. And uh, she, she, you know, they would ask stupid questions. She asked something like. Um, you know, they're having uh, breakfast. What would he serve or what would he be? And he said he was the banana and she'd have to peel him. And, uh, and she, you know, he would be really creepy. Lots of sexual innuendo. Right. right. It's just crazy. In fact, he he won. Um, she picked him. And they they come out and meet. And then they have the uh, the grand prize some weekend in a hotel with dinner and all this. Very romantic, Right. And so, you know, goes to break, and they're talking, and she was so creeped out by him. She wouldn't go on the trip, she wouldn't go for dinner, and she wouldn't even stick around at the show. How, do, how did we learn that? Uh, she herself, Cheryl Bradstar is, is still alive, and uh, she talks about it now. Um, she's very open about it if someone wants to. I talk to her, and she's very upfront about it. So she immediately uh, made the decision after she caught a glimpse of this guy, got a little uh, closer to him, uh, that she wasn't going on this romantic getaway, which was the grand prize. Right. And, and you know what? Um, it wasn't his looks. She thought he was an attractive man, and she was all excited until, you know, they go back to the, to the green room, to the back room, and the way he was touching her, the way he was talking to her, and the way he looked at her, she said it was just, it was so creepy. It was so bad. Um, she couldn't even be around him. And she didn't even want to do the close of the show with him where they stand and kiss, you know, and <laughs> they all stood there and blew a kiss to the audience. Right, right. She was really creeped out. And she didn't go on the trip. That was it. Jim Lang, the uh, the affable host of the dating game. I'm I'm trying to remember how he he used to introduce uh, each of the uh, the contestants, or in this case the, uh, the 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 eligible bachelors, and he would have some sort of funny throwaway line about each of them. Do you remember how he introduced um, how he introduced Rodney Alcala? Well, he introduced him as a uh, 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 
accomplished photographer and uh and he was uh he had uh, what he had done he'd been he'd been in the um army for a while he was a paratrooper could skydive um it was quite good it wasn't a bad introduction at all Grand Canyon University, an affordable private Christian university, is one of the largest and fastest growing universities in the country, offering more than 270 programs online. In addition to federal grants and aid, GCU's online students received nearly $130 million in institutional scholarships in 2022. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu slash myoffer to see the scholarships you may qualify for. Yeah, Lang, I think he had some funny line about um, Alcala being interested in photography since he was a child or something. His father found him in the darkroom at 13, fully developed or something like that. Yeah, yeah, some, you're, you're right. Some sort of corny little um, saying that he did, um, if, if, if only he knew. So by this time, 1978, again, uh, Rodney El had already killed... Four, probably more, possibly many more, as we'll find out. And he had raped an eight-year-old girl. D- did the game show the producers not vet these people at all? They mustn't have well enough. I think it was the time where, uh, you know, they would vet people, but not to the extent that they do now. Because one thing, it was much harder to do, and it took more time. So I think a lot of associate producers would... Uh, go by feel. They would uh, meet someone, read over their little application or their entrance, and talk to them. And if they got a good feel, or if they they had the right image, they would just put them on. I I don't think it was a detailed search. It couldn't have been. It, there's no way it could have been. Because that was ten years after the the first one he got convicted for, and he was actually on parole for. So he there's no way they could object. And and the bachelorette Cheryl Bradshaw, who you say is still living, um, when she found out about his, the fact that he, he he's a serial killer and a, and a rapist and a and the predator and a predator of the first order, did she describe to you where she was when she found out how she reacted? Oh yeah, she uh, and with her she she's quite a brave person. She was also very uh, assertive and uh strong so for her it was um uh, she just knew it and she it didn't it didn't scare her like i thought it would have it didn't freak her out she was so convinced of his character from just that one meeting that she was not surprised it it it, it did not surprise her to find out and that's kind of how she reacted to me Take us back to Rodney Alcala's uh, family life. Uh, where did he grow up? What was his What was his family life like? It seemed like he was in a good family. Uh, good working father. Uh, he was born in San Antonio, and um, uh, they had a good life. He had. He was one of four siblings. Mother stayed home. Uh, they were involved in, uh, you know, Catholic school. So. They were brought up right. Um, they seemed to be a good family. There were no problems in him. He was uh, good with the other students at school. He was uh, all around a good kid. Uh, their grandmother uh, got really sick when he was about eight, and the family moved down to Mexico uh, until she passed away. Now, something strange happened at that point. Um, when they were in Mexico, within a year, Rodney's father came back and went to L.A. And uh, they told the family it was for work. But after grandmother died, a couple of years later, the rest of the family moved back, but they lived separately then from the father. So there was some sort of separation between the mother and the father, and the kids didn't know this was the first they heard about it. And he was about 12 years old, I would think, then, 11 or 12. And so I think it came to a shock to the to, to the kids. They, they weren't living with father anymore. Right, so, right. And did, did, he become, did he become an angry child as a result, do we know? Well, no, not at that point. You see, that's kind of the, the, the strange thing. He, he went through high school, good kid, good grades, uh, very popular, 
had lots of girlfriends. Um, he, you know, he, he was the all-around good kid. At 19, he uh, joined the paratroopers, went back to Carolina, and even the uh, initially the, at the paratroopers said he was very good. He was very good at, at the job they had him doing, clerking. He was very sharp on time. People loved him. Everything was going really good. And then his father died while he was in the military. Comes back for the funeral. Everything seems normal. You know, as normal as can be for a funeral. And then he flies back to go to uh, paratroopers again in Carolina. And a couple months later, he shows up at home out of the blue. His mother's like, well, what are you doing here? You're, you're supposed to be in, you know, back at the, in the army. And he goes, I've left. He just went AWOL, just walked away. So she, she, she convinced him to turn himself in. She brings him in. And so they do a, um, a little psychiatric, psychiatric, I can't say now, an overview of his mental status. And uh, they actually diagnosed him with an antisocial personality and discharged him. And uh, his superior officer said the last couple of months, he'd been really, um, you know, late. He wasn't doing a very good job. He wasn't focused. Um, so his mother kind of just put that all to, well, he just lost his father. Hmm. Hmm. So, but that seemed to be the turning point. The first time you see something go from a pretty good kid, student, um, go-getter to all of a sudden, you know, walking away from the army and being diagnosed um, with this antisocial personality, and uh, so things started getting shaky at that point. And then, after he leaves the army, as you mentioned, he he uh, enrolled in the UCLA School of Fine Arts, and he's studying film under. Well, I'm just going to call him for what he is a pedophile, Roman Polanski at New York University. Yeah, you know, uh, it, it could it be stranger? You know, he <laughs> he's studying. But he see he was good enough to get in to NYU and to get in Polanski School because you know at that time in the in the sixties and the later sixties too Polanski was very famous. Sure, and, sure. He was the darling was, of Hollywood. He was the darling he of was. Hollywood, and and regrettably, uh, this is so insidious and toxic. He still is in Hollywood. Yeah. They get up in uh, you know the uh, Jack Nicholson and and Meryl Streep and these people that are you know the the gods in Hollywood. They still defend him. Yeah, yeah. It's pretty endless, and and, and you know, uh, it, it, is is that a weird coincidence that. Now, Kellogg starts studying with him. Mm. Like, they both had the same disorder. They both had the same desires for these underage girls. I just, I just thought that was, is that bizarre or what? How did that happen? How did they just find each other? When did he fi- commit his first crime? Well, the first one we know about officially was 1968. And that's when he picked up Tal Shapiro. She was an eight-year-old girl in West Hollywood. And he picked her up and took her to his place. And then he, you know, beat and raped her and onward. And what happened was there was a guy that was on the street when he picked her up that thought it was strange, followed them. He went to a corner payphone and called the cops. So two cops came to check it out, and when they knocked on his door, he opened it up. The one cop saw the girl laying on the floor, covered in blood. Oh, dear. So so the cops bust in, and the girl, at first, they thought, oh, she must be dead, because she was completely covered. Um, but she started coughing. So they ran to her and, uh, you know, were, were tending to her. And uh, Rodney Alcala runs out the back door and he gets away now the girl lived um because of that you know they they tended to her and but he did get away and they actually didn't catch him for that for three years right because he he uses some he skips the town he he leaves the state goes under an assumed name john Berger or something and then that's when he enrolls in nyu yeah 
so he's in he's in school and and then in the summer um what's he do he gets a job at a girl's school like uh, a youth camp know, counselor yeah. yeah he's a he's a counselor at an all-girls school oh my girls god ages nine to 13 and he did it for three summers in a row I, I, I just, it's just how these weirder things you could, this could be a movie so easily. Um, you'd almost not believe it. Right. Right. And, and so, so he's doing this and now afterwards, you see for these three years, um, we know now that he killed at least two in New York and three others in probably, um, the Boston area. Because of DNA hit. Right. The so first you know, one the first okay. one being in, in seventy one was a um she was a flight attendant. Um uh Cornilla Michelle Crilly, I guess was his first murder victim, correct? Yes. Yeah. And 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 so so he was doing this and of course we nobody knew uh until after the fact. And um what he what he was doing is when he was a counselor for the girls Two girls in the third year, um, they walked to the post office to mail a letter. I mean, that sounds primitive nowadays. <laughs> and uh, in the post office, they used to have most wanted posters. Right. And the girls, it was pouring rain, so they were waiting for the storm to go. And they were looking over all the pictures. And who did they see? They saw Counselor John Berger. Uh, and they, it was like, well, that can't be him. But it looks just like him. No, it can't be. When they get back to the to the school, they tell the dean. Dean comes to the post office, looks it over for close to an hour, is what he said. And he still wasn't sure, so he called the FBI phone number just in case. And so the FBI came the next day, they fingerprinted him, and it was him. So, um, and then this was uh, interesting too, because the, the officer that was in charge in L.A. of that case, uh, this Tal Shapiro, was um, uh, probably you've, someone you've had on, too, Steve Hodell. Steve Hodell. No. Remember, he, he's written three books, and he's he's the guy that says his great-grandfather killed the Black Dahlia. Ah, yes, yes, yes. That, okay, so, that uh, sounds uh, familiar. Uh, now, yeah. You know, Alan, there's another kind of predator that's lurking out there. Maybe not as evil and dangerous as a, a Rodney Alcala, but you still need to be mindful and protect yourself against uh, things like online identity theft and people who are trying to steal your passwords. And the Internet security experts are telling us we should be using a different password for every website. That could be a nightmare, you know, keeping track of all of those different passwords, whether online shopping and banking and email and all the other essentials. Now, now, a complicated password might be more secure, but it's so difficult to remember. Well, now, there's a great solution. It's called RoboForm. You never need to remember or type a password ever again. RoboForm gives you stronger passwords and faster logins, all with a single click. It keeps all your devices in sync. And when you shop online, RoboForm fills in those long address forms with one click. It's available for Windows, Mac, iOS, and Android for personal or business use. And for peace of mind, RoboForm has around-the-clock support. It's one great solution for online security. Learn more at OneGreatSolution.com. That's OneGreatSolution.com. Richard has tiny talking insects living in his sock drawer. We have bags and we are living in Richard's sock drawer. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Alan Warren, the author of Killing Game, the true story of Rodney Alcala, the game show killer, is here with me on Conspiracy Unlimited. So he's extradited to California on charges of rape and attempted murder of this poor girl, Tally Shapiro, but he gets off again. Why? Well, because the girl, after she got out of the hospital, parents and the girls moved out of the States because they said, that's it. They can't take the violence anymore. They don't want to live in the U.S. anymore. So by the time three years pass and they get him back in L.A., they can't get any witnesses, and they can't even get the girl to come to court. 
So they have nobody to testify. So, so, so he cops a plea and gets off on a lesser charge. Exactly, contributing to a minor was was the charge. It's kind of like a molesting. So he had to register as a sex offender, and he spent almost a year in prison. But then he was set out in probation. He got a three year sentence officially. So he's out on probation, and so what's he do? Uh, within the first month, the uh, probation officer lets him go to New York again. And so what's he do? He kills another girl. Which, again, we don't learn about un- until DNA and, and many, many years later. Yeah, and that was, a, that was an unusual one, because that was the goddaughter. That was Ellen Hover. She was 23, and she was the goddaughter of Dean Martin and Sammy Davis Jr. Oh, and wow. Her, her father was, was a big Hollywood club owner, huge Ciro's in, in Hollywood, which was huge with all the stars, so they put actually a hundred thousand dollar reward to the to the capture and the finding out of who killed her. So she was like, it was a a big news item. I remember now. They found her body on the grounds of the Rockefeller Estates. That's right, and that that ties into him again. You see, now when we look back at everything he's done, he started doing things um, for a reason. Um, when he was killing girls in New York. He was, he was trying to kill with other serial killer motives. So he was looking at the 44 caliber killer in New York, and he would pick the same type of girls, the same age group. Ah. When, he was, when he was in Seattle, uh, three of the girls that they know he, he uh, had strangled now uh, were actually at first blamed on the Hillside Strangler. That's right. He was interviewed by members of that task force. Exactly. So, you know, he was actually scoping out uh, girls in other cities, and he would go kill them. Like, now we know there's one in Wyoming, uh, two in Idaho, uh, Texas now, uh, San Francisco. He would actually kill people throughout the states, and they would get lumped in under whoever was killing the most popular at the time. And he got away with all of it without even being suspected. Oh, I see. So he was using the actual killers. He was yeah. using their motives, selecting the same type of victims yeah. and using the actual killers as cover, in a sense. Actually, it's deviously, it's evilly yeah. brilliant, isn't it? So this is, oh, this, is, this, is, this is when he's working at the L.A. Times. He was a typesetter. Yeah, he came back. He was working at the L.A. Times. Again, they never checked him. <laughs> he had a record. Uh, it's just bizarre how he kept on doing these things and getting away with it. Right. And now and, at this point, he's working as a, or he, at least he's he's telling people he's a professional fashion photographer and he's using this uh, to lure, what, young women to his apartment? Is that his MO? Uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, but you see, when he was back in California, he was primarily focused on underage girls. Because most of the ones would all be um, 11, 13, 15. Uh, that was his real um, desire, I guess you would call it. When he went out of the city and attacked other girls, again, he picked the age that was appropriate. So they'd be 20s, 30s, even 40s. But he, he was, was, right, but these pictures that he was taking, uh, they were, as you say, young girls. He was showing the photographs to colleagues at work, and weren't these, these were naked children. Exactly. Boys and girls, not just girls. And no one uh, said anything? No. And, and he did this for years. Uh, nobody, I don't know, I don't know how he could have enough charm that people would not say anything or think, oh, that guy's kind of a little nutty, right? Not even have that feeling. They all enjoyed his company, and he would get away with it. And now these girls, and you got to realize what he started doing was he started torturing them. He started, um, so he would get, get a girl in the car. You can win a contest. I can take your picture. I'm a photographer. We'll win money, and, and and some of them he would get phone numbers. Some of them he would get to come to his place, uh, sometimes to a park, and then he would eventually uh, kill them. 
but they it started becoming long and drawn out where he would uh, tie them up and he would beat them and then uh, torture them. He started burning them. Oh, dear Lord. He started Lord. cutting them. He started doing things while they were still alive. They would pass out. Then he would wait till they come back again, come to. Then he would do it all over again. And and when that's why I included so many of the autopsy reports was because almost every injury these girls were sustaining, they were still alive. Oh, Lord. Well, so he wanted to torture them for some reason. Then he started doing, like when you, when you mentioned Hover, how he left her on the um, grounds, he started doing things like that. So in, in L.A., he, he found another girl that he left. She was 19, and he, he uh, cut her up to, to where she was almost a round ball, like if you were a circle outside in, so that he could roll her in front of Marlon Brando's house, right, in the little park right across from it, so that if you opened up Marlon Brando's front door, you would see this girl faced totally round toward you. Oh, Lord. So he, uh, and, it, and it was getting so much that by the time he was on his, I don't know, seventh or eighth victim, it, I also included that so people realized that he was he was disfiguring them so badly that uh, they couldn't have any sort of an open coffin. None of the uh, embalmers or the uh, funeral homes were able to make it so that they could be presentable. They were so badly deformed. Um, so so he, he, he was on this, I don't know, he was on this mission or something to make sure that people, when they found the body, would see it in a really degrading pose in a position and that he also wanted them badly uh, tortured mangled i i don't know exactly what his i why he was doing this hmm. like they weren't people he knew they weren't relatives friends well obviously an evil sick individual derives some pleasure from this uh, yeah I, I, I don't know how I just I, I just look at his young age and, and up to 19 and how he had such a normal life you know four kids working dad mother everything seemed to be good joins the army and how it turns so quickly and uh, it just seemed to get darker and darker and deeper as the days went by so in um 1979, after his appearance on The Dating Game, uh, he, um, he picks up a, uh, a young 12-year-old girl somewhere between Huntington Beach and her ba- ballet class. This is Robin Samso. Right. And um, she's found 12 days later, dead, of course, decomposed, in the, uh, the Los Angeles foothills. And this, is, this is the one where they finally go to trial. How did they nail him for the Robin Samso murder? Well, you know, what, what, this is really bizarre. Um, so he picks her up, and he gets her up in the foothills. And, and just when he's up there, um, a, a, a woman forest ranger uh, drives by and sees him on the outside of his car with this young girl. And she said when she looked in the rearview mirror at him when she drove by, she got the creeps. Hmm. But she goes to the to the forest uh, office and says nothing. Then the next day she's uh, driving by, and she sees him out there again in the same location, but there's no girl. And he's covered in mud and dirt all over his face and clothes. And uh, she said maybe blood. I mean, she couldn't say for sure. So she continues to drive by and she does nothing again and she doesn't report it she just leaves it and then the next uh, two days later she's um, with a partner a forest ranger partner and they go down that they're down the trail by where this was where she had seen these the guy and the girl and um, her partner uh, at the time sees some uh, bones and jokingly kicks it toward her freaked her right out and uh, anyway again nothing gets reported 
then she said one of the nights she decided to go up there and check herself, and uh, she said she found the remains of what seemed to be uh, a young child. Again, she didn't report it. What in the world is going on? I know. When I was I was going through this, thinking, well, what is wrong with her? Like, what? You're a forest ranger. You find bones or remains. You call the cops. Like that's. I just didn't know what was going on here. I was trying to figure out what was. And so, eventually, another forest ranger finds the remains and calls the cops. This was almost two weeks after her. She originally saw right them standing out there. So, so it ends up being the Samso girl. So um, eventually they, they question all the rangers and they get her in and then she starts telling the story. So this ends up being a big problem uh, because then they, they catch Akala who, and bring him to trial, but um, she ends up being a witness. But in two of the three appeals now, it's been overturned because of her testimony. Because of her testimony. And we're, because of her. And it went to the, the California Supreme Court. Didn't they throw it out because they said the jurors had been improperly informed of his prior sex crimes? I mean, why, yeah. would, why would that be inadmissible? It, well, I'll tell you what. We, <laughs> asking all the different people and the commissioner of police and, and talking to everyone down in California... Uh, if I told you what he said, I couldn't say it because there's so many swear words. But in essence, uh, the commissioner said that, bottom line, as long as we have the Supreme Court that we have in California, not, nobody will ever be put to death until that they've changed, until they're different, because um, they're too liberal. And re- reviewing it, 65 of 73 of death sentences in California have been overturned by this Supreme Court. Great. So he. So, so in, in 1986, they have a second trial, uh, virtually identical to the first, and um, it's overturned again, this time by the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. Right. Right. Because they said that she was brainwashed by the cops. Uh, the, the, the park ranger had been, uh, the, who found Samso's body, that she'd been right. hypnotized or, or brainwashed, right? Yeah. Well, you, know, I, you know, after a while, it starts to get comical. And, um, the, the, you know, the sad thing is um, these families have to go through trial after trial after trial. Right. For nothing. Yes. You know, he, he shows up in, in sunglasses and a nice sports jacket, and he's, uh, he's, it's a game to him because he's going to get convicted, but it's always for death, automatic appeal, and he always gets off. It's just constant. It's just been an overturn after another. He, you know, there can be another 12 victims now that has come up in the last year that his DNA has hit. Right, because he took so many, like hundreds and hundreds of pictures of these young uh, kids, really, many of them in uh, in sexually explicit poses and they're naked and so forth, but they can't be identified uh, now, of course, but they, we don't know. I mean, how many of those were his victims? How many of those went missing and have never been accounted for? Oh, and that's the problem. And that's where it's coming up, because now they, they put on... Now, there's 215 pictures on the New York Police Department site under Acala, and it's also on the FBI website now. And what happens is uh, people look, and then people are, are identifying them slowly. And when they find out who it is, and a lot of times they found out they were murdered or just gone missing. So, uh, you know, we don't know. But the ones that they've been finding murdered now that DNA is involved, they take the DNA, and that's where they keep coming up positive with with Akala. He, he's getting so many hits per year. Right, right. We'll, we'll never get through this. He may uh, end up being the the um, most notorious serial killer of all time before it's all said and done. Because in two thousand and three, there's a third trial again in the uh, on the uh, the Samso charges. 
And uh, I guess it was during this time that they start to really uncover um, his involvement in some of the other murders with, with DNA matches and so forth. Right. Yeah, because DNA got permitted as of 2002. Right. So then they started running it. And the good thing California does do with all of their cases is they keep their rape kits on file or they're, you know, they keep the evidence for years, whereas a lot of states never did, like the Wyoming and Idaho and all those. A lot of those states never kept any of their files or records or DNA. It was in this, the 2003 trial, the third one, which was totally bizarre, a total circus, because this is when Rodney L. Kayla decided uh, that he would act as his own attorney. Yeah, yeah, and actually he's been doing that pretty much ever since. And yeah, he comes out his own, like I said, he comes out looking like he's... uh, a hot shot, and and he, you know, when you look at it, he's really playing a game with everyone. He's just having a fun time. He, you know, I tried to you know, to show some of the things that he would ask, or show the the jury and and the, the things he would ask the cops. He would just either not have a question or say, did 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 they find earrings? You know, that's just. Like, bizarre question. Right, and he was interrogating himself at one point. Yeah, then he starts doing himself. Uh, it, it just he's ha- But when you look at him, he, he's got like a, a smile. He, he's almost like, uh, this is great. He's having great attention. He asks for things. You know, he was showing the jury his, ni- his um, 1978 dating game. Uh, right, as part of his defense, <laughs> I guess yeah. trying to normalize himself. And, f- and for his closing argument, he played Arlo Guthrie's song, Alice's Restaurant. Yeah, he, he, this is just like a, uh, a circus. And, you know, he got convicted. That was That's when they combined four other girls with Robin Samso. So he got convicted of all five murders. Um, but then all five were on death, so he's getting five more appeals. Right, it, it, right. It, it's not, you know, and the and that was the one where Robin Samso's mother actually. Uh, this really blew me away. 2010 uh, court. She's actually showing up to the trial every single day. She's sitting about 20 feet or so behind Alcala, the defense station, and she had a gun in her purse every single day. Oh my. How did she get in? I thought you had to go through. I still can't get an answer to this. How could she? And the very last day, we know this is true, because when she come out, he got convicted. She took her gun out of the purse and showed everybody. Oh, wow. and this is 42 years later after her daughter had been brutally raped. Yeah, I know. And that's what I mean. And, and these people are, are sitting through this for for years and they're going through trials like that take months and months and not just one two three it just keeps going because now they're they're all appealed again this is going to go on for years and it's dragging through so many people um their lives are being just torn apart. Well, he's uh, he's in his seventies now, and and uh, from what I understand, he's he's uh, kind of frail. Wasn't he uh, unable to show up at a at a hearing because of because of his condition? I mean, he he's likely he's not likely to to, to live much longer. Uh, or yeah, yeah, he gets sick. It seems like he has issues. He's had a few different issues and a few surgeries, and he's had some problems, but. Um, you know, for, as far as I, it gets to the point where, I'm, to me, it's like, just put them down. But it's not my choice. I, it just it just continues suffering for everybody. Indeed. Uh, well, uh, as you as you say, it, it it is all a game for him, and uh, uh, his appearance on the dating game, notwithstanding, he is the game show killer in more ways than one. Alan, this is a, a, a particularly gruesome, uh, certainly evil to the core uh, individual, Rodney L. Kayla. Uh, but it is a fascinating account, if nothing else, highlighting the, the total incompetence of uh, the judicial system, uh, you know, criminal background checks. All of these things went by the, the wayside. Not only was he able to, to walk onto the set of, a, of the dating game and participate 
after having killed a number of people. Uh, later, he became a, a, a or earlier he was a youth camp counselor. Just uh, a, a horrible, horrible, tragic story from beginning to end. Yeah, it's pretty. It's pretty, it's pretty amazing uh, what he got away with, and uh, I, I just don't know. Like I said, it just I just shook my head. I I, I didn't realize until I was researching how much he really did and for how long. How can people get a hold of uh, the true story of Rodney Alcala, the game show killer? Killing Game is the title. It's on Amazon, of course. In Canada, it's in chapters, and in the U.S., Barnes & Noble. Thanks again, Alan. Good night. Thank you. Well, that was just creepy. That's all I can say. Now, before I dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs, I'm going to let you know what's coming up on episode 18 of Conspiracy Unlimited. But before that, if you'd like to have your name entered into a draw for one of my Strange Planet collections on CD, volume 1 or 2, here's all you need to do. Subscribe to Conspiracy Unlimited if you haven't already done so, and then rate it and review it. Grab a screenshot of that and email it to me at richardserrett1 at gmail.com. That's richardserrett, S as in Simon, Y because I love you, R-E-T-T, the numeral one at gmail.com. Every Friday I'll draw from a list of emails and the lucky winner will receive a Strange Planet collection. I'll drop that in the post for you. Good luck. We're just nicely into 2018. So let me ask you, is weight loss on your mind? You know, unfortunately, the commitment to weight loss often fades fairly quickly. About 90 days, that's when most people give up, within that 90-day window. The key is having the right mindset. And getting thin and staying that way lies in our thought processes. And hypnotherapy can make all the difference. Now, clinical hypnotherapist Dr. Stephen G. Jones has created a set of five audio hypnotic sessions that apply the power of hypnosis to reprogram the mind and replace bad habits with vibrant, positive new habits to help you achieve natural and long-lasting weight loss. Weight loss hypnotherapy really works. And it's available now at a special discount. Isn't it time to lose those extra pounds? Check out Weight Loss Hypnotherapy right now at SmartClickSavings.com. That's SmartClickSavings.com. Coming up on Episode 18 of Conspiracy Unlimited, one of the kings of the paranormal podcast, Jim Harold, with some spine-tingling tales. Until next time, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting.